Psalm 6, to the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful to You for Your Word that You give us in David's own pen. Words to pray to You in our weakness. Lord, there are many here today who have come uh, with heavy hearts, perhaps those with a sort of deep soul sickness. So Lord, we're mindful that your eye is on us, that you hear our prayers, that you hear our worship, and delight in us as a, as a father over his children. So Lord, we open your word as your children to be instructed, to be given wisdom for living according to your will. Teach us how, Lord, to persevere even through the hard times of our lives. Through Psalm 6, Lord, would you speak, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've just heard a prayer that King David wrote about 3,000 years ago. If you wrap your mind around that for a second, that's a pretty stunning thing that we get to benefit from a king's prayer journal 3,000 years ago. And I think it's a, it's a remarkable psalm at that. It's a psalm of lament. Uh, it was part, actually, of the ancient Jewish church's liturgy. And so this would have been a regularly recited, uh, regularly sung psalm. And it's, it's no doubt that Jesus himself would have known this song, just like you're going to go home today singing Cornerstone because it got stuck in your head. Jesus would have had Psalm 6 stuck in his head after church. And um, these are, these are the, that's the way music works. That's why the psalms are such a powerful part of the Christian life of devotion. They use meter and, and dynamics and melody and harmony. They use dynamics and all of these, these things in music that convey the heart of God in a way that mere words can't. And David's song in Psalm 6 is a lament, though he gives no particulars about his circumstances, and I think that's actually really important to note. That's, that's pretty good for us because it means that we can relate to what David's going through, that he's going through something that we universally, even today in 2017, can relate to. And so it's a universal, not particular lament about what he's going through. 
And it was genuinely an expression of his, of his pain. But it also in these words in the Psalms, we need to hear the voice of our Savior as well. And we need to remember that these all point forward to one who's greater than David, who will come. We can hear Jesus' sorrow as we read the psalmist's lament, and we can ultimately we want to see Christ as exalted above David, whose deliverance comes through the grave, and his kingdom will have no end. And so as we meditate on this psalm today, I want to show you some principles that it, that it teaches us about how to persevere through times of trouble. Some of you are not suffering. Some of you have come in and gone, man, this is going to be a, a downer. Uh, it's overcast out. We're going to talk about suffering. Others of you are actually in the fire right now. And wherever you are in that journey, Solomon teaches us to be prepared because there is a time for mourning and a time for dancing. And so if you're in a time of dancing, I didn't see any dancing during our singing, but anyway, that's a different topic. If it's a time of jan- dancing and joy for you, then do this Take these words as God's wisdom and store them up in your hearts for the day of trouble. Because as Solomon has told us, the day will come when you'll need God's Word rooted in your heart in order to know how to find hope in a despairing situation. And though our battles are different than David's for sure, we share with David a common experience, a universal human experience of fear of anxiety, of depression, of torments and different things that keep us up at night. And David was going through that. And so the question is for us today, how did the man after God's own heart, David, how did the man after God's own heart walk through that time? How did he commune with God? What was his heart like? What was his communication like with God in the time of trouble? And so with all of those things in mind, we'll look again at Psalm 6 and hear the song of David. To the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Sheminith. That word Sheminith is a Hebrew word that means eight, the number eight. And so some people speculate, you know, we don't know for certain. We don't have, as Tom says, a video recording of it. But some have suggested that that refers to a musical octave others to an eight-string wire. But in any case, the Sheminith is a, a musical instruction, and it's a psalm of David, we're told. Oh Lord, every time he says Lord in this passage, by the way, just red flag up, and that says Lord, it's in your Bibles, it's the capital L-O-R-D. That means it's referring to the covenant name of God, to Yahweh, which means I am. He is the I am that was revealed uh, to the people of Israel as the covenant-keeping God. And that word is significant. His, his name is significant. He's not just some far-off God. He is Yahweh. He's the covenant-keeping God. Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. can also be translated, stop rebuking me in your anger. Stop disciplining me in your wrath. Now, David's clearly conscious, whatever his situation is, that he is deserving of rebuke. But he doesn't ask God to stop rebuking him and to remove his discipline. He asks him not to do so in anger, but to do so out of his mercy and his steadfast love. He's praying in effect, Lord, chasten me with this trial. Discipline me 
for my maturity as, as a follower of Christ, use this trial to chasten me and not destroy me. In verse 2, he goes on, Be gracious to me, I am, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones, down to my body's supporting structure, are troubled. They tremble with fright is the intent of that phrase. My bones, they tremble with fright, which is psychological in aspect. My soul also is greatly troubled. So it's a comprehensive sickness that he's experiencing. It's not the flu. There's something going on that's deeper than that. It's so deep a soul sickness that it's actually causing his body to decay. And his heart is weary of sorrow. As we'll see in a minute, the worries of his mind keep him awake at night. His body is weakened in pain. He's bedridden with a thousand torments lying in bed beside him. And I wonder if there are any here who can relate to that, anywhere on that spectrum of depression, of a feeling of hopelessness or anxiety, a restlessness. And David is weary of the dark night of the soul, what's been called. And he prays according to God's covenant name. He says, heal me, I am. Heal me, Yahweh, for my bones tremble in fright. My soul also is greatly troubled. And then he goes on, but you, O Lord. And it's as if he's going to now summon together all of the many praiseworthy things he can think of about God. But you, O Lord, you're the deliverer, and so I'm good now. You, O Lord, are the healer. You're mighty to save. It's as if he's collecting in his mind all of these things that are praiseworthy about God as he remembers Yahweh and what that means. Historically, how faithful he has been in the past. He collects it all in his mind and it's as if he sort of reaches a breaking point and just says, how long, O Lord? How long? Yes, you're the almighty healer. You're the deliverer. But how long? When? How long, O Lord, will you withhold your help from me? It's a profound prayer of faith, really. It's a prayer that simultaneously confesses weakness and affirms God's authority. It's a declaration of hope in Christ. And it's something that we could incorporate in our prayer lives as well. There are times when that's the only prayer I can pray. And I know some of you have gone through things too, where how long, O Lord, is about the only thing you can muster. And I want to suggest that's actually a very faithful prayer and one that David teaches us to pray, especially in the dark times. Without that how long kind of, kind of sure hope and reliance on Christ, the body and the soul decay. And there's a, as an illustration of this, a real-life illustration, and there's a study, it's really a real-life testimony that you've probably read or heard about called Man's Search for Meaning, and it's by Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a man in the 1940s who suffered under the Nazis in a concentration camp. He spent three years in prison there. He lost his wife, his mother, his father, his brother. He was facing starvation and sickness all the time. He was brutally beaten and, and mistreated. A horrific, tragic event that he survived. And in doing so, he made some interesting observations about the human condition. He noticed that some were 
quick to die. They seemed like they just rushed right to the grave in a premature death, but others somehow seemed to survive and thrive. And, and he wanted to know why. And so to explain what he discovered about the human condition, a particularly illustrative story that he tells in his book is about the night that a man in the concentration camp came to Frankel and said, I had a dream. I want to I confide in you about this dream I had. And he says, okay, well, what was the dream about? And the man says, well, in my dream, a voice spoke to me and he said, I will grant you whatever wish you desire. Just ask and I'll answer. So the man says, I would like to know. Okay, here's my wish. I want to know when will I be delivered from this prison, from suffering, from this concentration camp. And to his amazement, the voice said, March 30th. And Frankel says that it was February when this man came to him. And then he said that for that next month, he saw this man come to life with hope. He was enlivened by this, this knowledge that on March 30th, he was convinced that this was a prophetic voice in his dream. But as the day grew closer, the war intensified. It didn't go away. And so this man began to sink into a despair. On March 29th, Frankel writes, with no sign of the war stopping, he suddenly fell ill with a high fever. This man on March 30th, who expected to be delivered on that day, instead became delirious and lost consciousness. On March 31st, that man was dead. The Proverbs say, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. In a similar case, with the concentration camps, there was a chief doctor who reported a, a spike, a dramatic increase in the mortality rate between Christmas of 1944 and New Year's Day of 1945. And he was confident that the reason was that a lot of prisoners would have this false sense of hope that on Christmas Day, surely that's the day I'll be delivered. That's the day I get to go home on Christmas. Or on New Year's Day, the New Year, surely we're not going to start another year in this camp. And they would have this false sense of hope like that man did who hoped for March 30th and they would fall ill and die. And all of this led Frankel to, a, to conclude that he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. I'll say it again. He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. And he found that those who had hoped to achieve something after their deliverance, after they've been set free, had hopes to finish a project or to start a new career, seemed to be more likely to survive than those who had given up hope. And they just sort of said, well, my situation is hopeless and here I sit and, I, and they would waste away. Without hope within such stream afflictions, the soul and the body break down. And we know that's in the very crucible that David's in here in Psalm 6. He's so sick in his soul that his body is falling apart and he prays for deliverance and healing. But does he make that healing his hope? We'll see through the rest of the psalm where he puts his hope because it's not in healing. We would think that that would be what he prays for. And he does. He says, "Pray, heal me, O Lord. And yet that's not where he ultimately places his final hope because well, what if healing doesn't come in your life and that's what you had anchored your hope in? 
by this time, surely I'll, or surely I'll live to see, or surely this will happen in my life, and that's what I'm going to fix my hope on. And when it doesn't come to pass, our heart becomes sick, and we become troubled. And so David will teach us in a moment how to find our hope, not in the healing itself. And yes, pray for it. Yes, hope for it and want for it. And yet our ultimate, our final hope is not in those things. It's in remembering I am and, his, and my destiny to proclaim him to others. David cries out, how long, O Lord? Not will you ever? Is this going to happen? He says, When? He's certain that God has all authority even over the grave, which gives him renewed confidence. And so he goes on to petition the Lord now and pray for the Lord to do something. He says, turn. The idea being from anger to grace, from beatings to healing, O Lord. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Sheol is just a way of saying the grave. It's the place of the dead. When David gives the reason for his petition, it's, it's remarkable because it's not motivated by self-preservation. He says, I petition you, Lord, to turn because the name of Yahweh is at stake. The praise of your name is at stake. How will I recall your mighty works to others when I'm dead? And so David teaches us, I think, to examine ourselves, to ask ourselves, do we have a thorough knowledge of the Word of God, to know God's past faithfulness enough to proclaim them to ourselves and to others? We have to teach our children these things also, physical and spiritual children. As you come through life and meet people in in your world that you maybe take under your wing, spiritually speaking, as you mature in Christ and bring, bring others up, Uh, or as you raise physical children. It's an important thing to teach these children what it means to hope in the Lord and how to know that God can be trusted. I mean, the way we know He's trustworthy is we can look back for, well, like we said, the 3,000 years plus that the Psalms have tracked Christian after Christian who have suffered all kinds of things and put their faith and hope in Him and He's always, always delivered, even if through the grave. He's trustworthy, and we learn that from the biblical record of what he's done. David says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye, literally from all the tears and figuratively in the sense of his spiritual ability to see the way forward from this fog, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. I took that personally as a reminder to be especially watchful of our, for our enemy who's on the prowl. When we're at our weakest, when we're mourning, when we're in the state that David's in, we are much more susceptible to temptation. We are much more likely to believe lies as truth and dismiss the wisdom of God. And then David leaves his lament to do its work in the ears of the Lord, and now he turns his voice, directs it, his speech toward his enemies. He says, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord, I am, has heard the sound. Literally, the word there is voice. He has heard the voice of my weeping. And David draws confidence and comfort just from the knowledge that God has heard him and not forgotten him. And the famous 
and incredibly eloquent 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote a commentary on the Psalms, and it's regarded by many to be his, his best work and the best contribution to the church. And I think in part it's because Spurgeon himself suffered depression and chronic pain. And he, with a deep love of God and an intimate knowledge of sorrow, says this about Psalm 6, verse 8. He hath heard the voice of my weeping. Is there a voice in weeping? Does weeping speak? Is it not sweet to believe that our tears are understood even when words fail? Let us learn to think of tears as liquid prayers and of weeping as a constant dropping of importunate intercession, which will wear its way right surely into the very heart of mercy despite the stony difficulties which obstruct the way. My God, I will weep when I cannot plead, for you hear the voice of my weeping. With a sigh of relief, (laughs) David says, Lord, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord, Yahweh, I am the great covenant-keeping God has accepted my prayer. And as for my oppressors, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. And I don't mean in the same way that I am greatly troubled. See, I'm greatly troubled in a, under the discipline of the Lord right now. He's, he's pruning me. He's shaping me into the image of Christ. No, but these will be troubled and greatly ashamed not by a gracious rod of correction, but by a swift sword of wrath and justice. He finally says, they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And with that assurance, he ends his lament. But you may have noticed that nothing by the end of this psalm has really changed outwardly. His circumstances don't seem to have gone anywhere or changed. So, what was the result of this prayer? Well, it wasn't the removal of trouble, but what it was is the simple assurance that within his trouble, God had heard and not forgotten him. And he hears you, and he doesn't forget you. He hears you when you pray. And I know that that may not be very comforting when really what you want from your prayer is, okay, but what about this trouble I'm in? Okay, you heard me, that's nice, but what do I do? And there are some here who, like David, suffer a soul sickness. We need to know how to speak with God in our days of trouble for those who suffer with depression, for those who suffer anxiety, crippling fears. We need to know how to speak with God in the day of trouble. And when you pray and the Lord doesn't remove your affliction or doesn't pluck you out from that trouble, It can become very difficult for us as human beings. We just think, I don't know that I'm going to continue praying. You know, it's it's a it's difficult for me to continue praying because I feel like I've beat my head against that wall and I get no results. So, you know. And so I think we can naturally come to that place as human beings. And yet, David teaches us to continue praying. Continue praying for help, knowing that God hears you, and that that's enough that Yahweh hears you. Let it comfort you first to know that you're in good company if that's the case you're in. You're in good company with David, with Charles Spurgeon, with thousands of others who have gone before us in the church 
who've done wonderful things for the kingdom of God and yet wrestled inwardly with these, these things. You're in good company, even in this very room. Statistically speaking, one out of every five of you are currently dealing or have dealt with depression. And second, David's prayer teaches us that our feelings of God do not save us. God does. Our feelings of God do not save us. God does. There may be times he feels distant and absent, and that's when we wash our hands with prayer and say, well, I don't know what the good this is doing. Our feelings don't save us. God does. God hears your voice, and he is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. So even when things don't change, David encourages us to will ourselves to pray, even if the only thing we can say is, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And know that your hope doesn't reside in the removal of affliction, although that would be wonderful if he would grant that request. But your assurance is in the fact that God, who has always been faithful to deliver, even if that deliverance comes through death, He has heard and not forgotten you. There is one, however, and only one, who was forgotten in his lament. One who, much like David, suffered under, the God, under God's wrath, humbly accepted God's discipline, was considered by his enemies to be cursed by God, and cried out his lament to the Father when he was on the brink of death. But unlike David, who suffered justly for his sin, Jesus, the greater David, suffered justly for our sins and not his own. God relented in his anger against David, but on Jesus he poured out the full measure of his wrath so that you and I might know him. David tottered on the edge of the grave. Jesus entered the grave and on the third day was raised again. David experienced physical and soul-deep torment. Jesus suffered a torturous death in the abandonment of the Father. David's life was restored to him, and Jesus rose again and lives forever by the right hand of God. He is the greater David. In the book of John, Jesus echoes David's lament in saying, my soul is dismayed. Think of that. Your Savior has cried out laments that you and I cry all the time. My soul is dismayed. He quotes exactly another time in in the books of Luke and Matthew, he quotes exactly from this psalm. He says, get away from me to evildoers. And it's as if, like I said, the Lord has put these things in his heart, these scriptures in his heart, such that they come out in these moments. And so David's pleading and weeping is echoed in the sufferings of Jesus. And He delivers us from death to life and makes us co-heirs of His eternal kingdom where there will no longer be tears, nights of weeping, tossing and turning. There will no longer be laments or sorrow, but only the praise of I Am. Yes, like all of humanity, even God's redeemed, must face a clinical death. But, David's psalm will always assure us that the God of resurrection life will have the final word. 
And if David gives us that assurance, how much more will King Jesus? This is the enduring hope by which we can persevere with confidence and praise during the dark nights of the soul that our King will have the final word and nothing, not even death, can take that from us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we say amen to David's prayer. And inasmuch as they point to You, Lord, we say amen to Your prayer of lament and ask, O Lord, that You teach us to pray to You, to cry out in our suffering, not to turn from You and wash our hands of prayer and be done with it, by our own estimation, judge whether it's working or not. But Lord, we pray that You'd humble us And that even when all we can say is, how long, O Lord? Pray that You'd make us faithful in that prayer. Lord, for my brothers and sisters in the room who have dealt with this, with a similar kind of soul sickness that David experiences in this psalm, Lord, I just lift them up to You now. In whatever way, Lord, You see see their heart. Holy Spirit, would You give them the comfort that they need, Lord, the knowledge that You have heard them and not forgotten them. And Lord, may that be enough that Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, hears our cry. May we draw confidence and live as those who have an untouchable hope. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.